The reading of God's word is found in Mark chapter 11. We're going to suspend our study of the Ten Commandments uh, today and next Lord's Day, next uh, Lord's Day, of course, being Easter Sunday, and look at uh, today and next week, look at two passages that uh, tell us much about some of the great events in the life of Christ that are all significant for our daily living. Not just things that happened in the past, though that is true. This is real history. The gospel writers did not dream this up. They were led by the Spirit of God to write down and chronicle what took place when our Lord walked this earth. And every word that has been given to us, of course, is intended for our spiritual growth and nourishment so that we can be glorifying Christ himself as our Redeemer and Lord. So we're going to look at uh, the triumphal entry. Uh, it's interesting that uh, all four Gospels record uh, their specific take on what happened when Jesus went into Jerusalem to begin that last week of his earthly life. And so many of the things the Gospel writers uh, the four gospel writers tell us, some tell us some, some things and leave them out and others pick it up and say things that others didn't have. It's back and forth. But these are four things that are in every single gospel, the triumphal entry. And that in itself should tell us how important it is. You know, only two gospels tell us about the birth of Christ. But all four tell us about the last week of the life of Christ. So in this triumphal entry, let's read uh, verses 1 through 11. I'll read and let's follow along as I do so. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. All of us have uh, experience in one way or, or another of 
going to parades. You stop and think about it over the course of any given year, there are quite a few parades, starting with New Year's, all the New Year's Day parades, the bowl parades. And then you have parades in many communities when it comes to St. Patrick's Day and uh, back all the way through the year until you get to Christmas, Christmas parades. Then there's occasions when there are situations, and this has happened all through history, where uh, countries that have experienced some sort of triumph over their enemies will have a victory parade. And that parade will go through the streets of a, a major city and confetti will be thrown out, and uh, at least in more modern times. And there'll be great rejoicing at the victory. Think about uh, after World War II, uh, the parade that went through New York City and the famous picture of that sailor kissing that woman. <laughs> Neither one of them knew each other, uh, but they were both so excited that uh, that's what they did to celebrate. All kinds of things like that happen uh, in situations like that. And conquering kings would... Uh, right ahead of their captured enemies. And they would go into the city, and as they did in this processional that would take place, uh, crowds of citizens would, uh, standing alongside the road, would give uh, praises to the king and to the soldiers that won the victory. What we have read here has a ring of familiarity to occasions like that. It's the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It was a spectacular event in its own right, one that would, I'm sure, make for an effective scene in a Hollywood production. But this is no production. Not in the sense that we would think of such. This scene that we've read is the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life on earth, as we had mentioned. And it is significant for you and for me because of what it tells us about Christ's saving work for his people. We think of the birth of Christ. We think of the life of Christ. We think of the death and the resurrection of Christ. But here at the beginning of this significant week, Jesus is showing us that we need to understand what all of these things are about. It is a very powerful and very instructive situation that we read about here. And that I want you to notice at the beginning here how, as Jesus does this, he enters Jerusalem on his own terms. I think it's important that we understand that, that he enters this Last, last week of his life in full control of everything that's going on. Jesus is the sovereign king. He is not walking this earth, even though he's somewhat limited in his humanity, of course, he's not walking the earth, you know, with, with some kind of, of limitation in terms of what's ultimately going to happen with him and to him. He is in total control. The setting, of course, at the beginning of this chapter tells us 
where Jesus was at this point. He was, had been working his way through Galilee and heading towards Jerusalem, knowing what's coming. And as he gets close to Jerusalem, we read about these things that are about to take place. And it's important for us to keep in mind that this is the time, the annual time of the feast of the Passover. And because of that, there were going to be pilgrims from all over the region coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. We know, of course, that the Last Supper that Jesus would have later in this week would be based upon Passover. Why? Because Christ is our Passover. He is our sacrifice. He is the one that fulfills all of the Old Testament uh, rites and, and, and worship practices and offering sacrifices for sin in order for God to forgive them their sin. But those animals that were sacrificed, they couldn't save us from sin. They're animals. But they could teach us about the God who saves us from sin. And the one who ultimately would come and be as a lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So here, everybody's thinking in terms of Passover, Passover, Passover. And they're all geared up for that. And Jesus, knowing that that's happened, comes to two little villages on the far side of uh, the Mount of Olives. You remember, if you're, you know your Jerusalem geography, you may remember that on the east side of Jerusalem, there's this big ravine, the Valley of Kidron, and then up from that ravine is a significant hill called the Mount of Olives. It was about 2,500 feet above sea level. But on the back side of that hill, the Mount of Olives, um, where you couldn't see Jerusalem directly until you got up to the top of the hill and went down it and up into Jerusalem, that's where Bethany and that's where Bethpage, two little communities, uh, suburbs, if you will, of Jerusalem uh, would lie. Jesus comes to Bethany. Now, why did he come to Bethany? Well, you may remember uh, he had dear friends there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. In John's account, in chapter 12 of John, we read some helpful additions uh, of information about this event that Mark's telling us about. And Mark tells us that this is right after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Now, I point all that out to tell you that there was this heightened sense of expectation with the people. Passover, the word had gotten out, hot off the press, Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus does a miracle. And with all that in mind, Jesus knows exactly what to do at this point. He, of course, is not surprised at any of these things that take place. And so it is with that in mind that he makes these arrangements with his disciples. He sends two of them ahead into one of the villages, doesn't say which one, and he tells them what they can expect. He says in, in uh, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which 
No one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And of course, that's exactly what happened. We shouldn't be surprised at that either, should we? Imagine that. Things happened exactly the way Jesus said they would. Jesus is in control. Now, some people think that the reason this happened is because of some mystical, mysterious, uh, miraculous way that God worked in the hearts of the people that saw them, the disciples come and ask for the colt. And that the Lord just, you know, put those words in their mouths because Jesus had planned that to happen. Well, that could be true. We know that could be true. But probably it's more likely that Jesus had made prior arrangements. That could be true too. When he arranged for this cult to be there, the owner of the cult, Jesus asked that this cult be left there. And if anybody asks questions, tell them the Lord has need of it. And everybody will know, oh yeah, okay, we'll do that. But the disciples didn't know this. The disciples may have already started thinking, now Jesus is telling us to go do this and this seems a little risky. I mean, you don't just walk up, you know, it be like somebody walking up to your car and saying, uh, Jesus needs this car. We're gonna, have you got the keys? We're going to take it with us. And we'll bring it back. And we're thinking, yeah, right. And so the disciples are thinking, you know, we could get arrested for this. Stealing a colt. A brand new one, so to speak. No one's ever sat on it before. Must be special. All that is put to rest, and what impresses us here, should impress us, is the disciples do what Jesus tells them to do. In spite of their possible questions, probable questions, you know, how are we going to get pull this off? No, listen, this is very important for you and for me. It's important that we understand that we don't have to understand in order to obey. Have you ever thought about it that way? There's a part of us that just thinks, I can't do what God wants me to do because I don't understand why he's doing this. I can't, I can't trust God and I can't go on and continue my, my responsibilities, you know, in the world, knowing that I've got this terrible situation in my, in my home and, you know, financial problems are, are piling up and I just can't keep going like this. And then we remember what God teaches us in his word. We have to trust him for our daily needs. We just prayed that a while ago, didn't we? We ask God to give us this day our daily bread, but we have to trust him to give us this day our daily bread. And how faithful he has been in doing that. We praise him for his faithfulness, don't we? But we don't have to understand. We just have to obey do what God tells you to do. Do what his word instructs us to do, whether you can figure out how it's going to work out or not. You don't have to be the one to figure it out. 
because it's all a part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus was in total control here and his disciples were having to act on that reality and do what Jesus had commanded them to do. Sinclair Ferguson said it very simply and I think clearly, Jesus did not go to the cross as a helpless victim. He didn't come to earth with a certain plan in mind and it all fell apart. He was in complete control when he was arrested. There were those there that thought, Jesus, why can't you do something about this? Keep this from happening. This is not going well. Jesus says, look, if I needed to, I could call legions of angels. And he told Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority if it had not been given to you. Total control. Jesus is not only in total control of the situations in his life, he's in total control of the situations in your life. There's really no way that if you are a believer in Christ that everything has broken down and fallen apart and can't be fixed. If God wants to fix it, he'll fix it. If God wants to come up with another way to handle things in your life, he'll do that. But he is going to have his way. And for the Christian, that's a great comfort, isn't it? The sovereignty of God being worked out and fleshed out in very specific and real situations in our lives. Just as real as finding that little donkey. And John says it was a donkey. Here, Mark just says it was a colt. Just as real as finding that breathing animal sitting there waiting to be used and untied and taken to be ridden on by the king of kings. Jesus was preparing to enter Jerusalem to do this, this laying down of his life voluntarily. Voluntarily. Because he was in total control and he was willing to do what the Father had given him to do. In John, we read in chapter, uh, John chapter 10, when he's talking about the good shepherd, John, uh, Jesus reminds us there in uh, verses 17 and 18, John 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Repeatedly, he says, I lay it down, not I am laid down. I lay down my life voluntarily, willingly. I want to do this, hard as it will be. Think about Jesus' love for you, that he willingly, not because he, he desperately looked for some other way out to make this work, he willingly gave up his holy, sinless, perfect 
life as a ransom for our sins. To pay the penalty that our sins deserved. That's really what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2. He said there that Jesus humbled himself. He says that more than once in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Himself, that word himself is used there twice, meaning he did this on his own and he did it willingly. And so here we have Jesus coming into, uh, on the verge of going into Jerusalem from Bethany. I like the way Matthew Henry put it. He said, Jesus did not steal into the city incognito. This was going to be a very public thing. Jesus now, in a sense, is pulling the whole curtain back. He wants the world to see who he really is and to acknowledge him for that. And so he enters Jerusalem on his terms, just like he does everything on his terms, not ours. Secondly, notice Jesus enters Jerusalem as the victorious servant king. You want to add that term there, not just a victorious king, but a victorious servant king. Verses 7 through 10 Kevin DeYoung says that that you can kind of compare this treatment of Jesus here to rolling out the red carpet. That's the phrase we use when we talk about visiting dignitaries, you know, coming and we go all out to welcome that person. Well, this is the first century version of that. Jesus is having the people all around. Remember, they're coming in for Passover. They're all pumped up because of their expectations. And here comes Jesus sitting on this donkey. The disciples wanted to make it more fitting for him, as strange as it seemed. I mean, this is a really a strange situation when we first think about it. Why is Jesus getting on this little donkey? Tim Keller says that this donkey was really fit for a child or a hobbit. <laughs> Someone small. Because it's a small animal. But Jesus rides on it. The disciples put their coats on it. And as he begins riding, throngs of people gather. Some that were already there and some that were coming in uh, from from, uh, uh, Jerusalem. Because they were waiting for Passover. And they begin to line the road. And I, I want you to picture this. Again, that's why I think it could have made a great scene for a movie Jesus, if you were in Jerusalem and you hear all this commotion outside the city gates, you look over towards uh, uh, the Mount of Olives and you hear the, the noise getting louder and louder and then you see coming over the top of the hill Jesus on a donkey. And the people are lining the road in front of him, rolling out the red carpet, only it's green, I guess. Lining the road to welcome this king because they understood enough to realize that that's what a king would do. A victorious king coming to conquer. And they acknowledged that because these people were Jewish people and they knew their Old Testaments. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. Think about, for instance, Genesis chapter 49. See if I can find it. 
Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Those Jews knew. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the one riding on this colt, and he is the one who has been promised that would be the king. Tied in with that is what the people say here. When Jesus arrives, or as he's making his way to arrive in Jerusalem, the people shout out in verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What they're doing is quoting from Psalm 118. And they're also remembering another Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9 verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled with this king, whatever kind of king he was. The people didn't have that really down quite pat, as we'll see in a minute. But they were acknowledging this, this is... God's Old Testament word being fulfilled and they understood enough of that to praise him for it. And so there's these loud declarations and praises. Hosanna in the highest. And some think that maybe this was kind of being um, uh, like an antiphonal saying where one group says it another group responds to it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then another comes and says, Hosanna, the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I don't want to, I really am not trivializing this. I don't intend to. But it's the same type of thing that people will do at times when they're, where they're uh, yelling back and forth. Oh, let's say over in Starkville. Maroon. Why? Maroon, white. Well, let's elevate that and give it the, the best possible way to use this. And the people are doing something like that. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then blessed is he who, uh, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Back and forth, perhaps. Whatever the case, they were singing the praises of Jesus. Now, what we've got to figure out is what that's telling us in our own situations. Jesus is coming in is in an interesting, wonderful combination of humility and royalty. He's coming as a king, but he's coming as a, a king unlike any other. Kings tend to be rather 
have rather large egos. There's a lot of pride. And, you know, when a conquering king comes into town, he's just eating this up. Oh, what a great king. Look at what you've done. Kind of like when we have an election in our country and the victory, everybody's praising the one who's who's, uh, won the race. About two weeks after they're taking, have taken office, there's already, already being criticisms and disappointments and, you know, all of that. Because no king is perfect except Jesus. Jesus was rich. But the Apostle Paul says, for your sakes he became poor. That he through his, you through his poverty might be rich. He became poor so you could be rich, spiritually rich. So they're shouting these words from Psalm 118. Hosanna means save or save us. But do you think they really understood what they were saying? Well, to varying degrees perhaps, but probably very few really understood the significance of what Jesus was doing. Or maybe they were just caught up in the excitement of the situation and they were voicing these words because that's just what you do. It's all so wonderful and, and you just can't control yourself and you're just shouting out these words because they seem to fit. But that should cause some reflection on our part. We offer words of praise and adoration to Jesus still even though he's not riding into town to the acclaim of thousands of people. But the question is, when we offer these praises to Jesus, are we really offering these praises because we understand what we're saying to Jesus? Do we really appreciate the significance of him or are we just sort of mouthing the words because it seems like the right thing to do? Let me put it a little more bluntly. Do we praise the Jesus we want or the Jesus who really is? You see, these people, for the most part, were praising the Jesus they wanted. They wanted a king who would come in and immediately conquer the dreaded Roman rule and give them this peace, where there's no more fighting, no more domination from outside their own people, and, and they could get out from under the yoke of, of the Roman Empire, the emperor. They wanted that so much, and Jesus had said, he's the king. And so a lot of them took that in this limited, temporal way. Whereas Jesus is talking about a far greater and more significant kingdom. You see, there's a difference there between the Jesus the people wanted you know, get us out of this terrible political situation we're in. And the Jesus who really is, who came to say, my kingdom is not of this world. It's one that's going to last forever. And you're going to be a part of it if you know and love and depend on me. You see, when we come to worship Jesus, we have to make sure that we're worshiping him his way. 
that we're worshiping him for who he is and not because we've got this lower standard and more limited perspective where we can only see the problems that are right under our noses and we, we want that to be solved right now or we, we are worried about what's going to happen next week and we, you know, Lord help. It's not that we couldn't ask for God to help us with those things, but there's a far deeper, more profound basis for it. God has more in store for you than you and I can even imagine. And we don't need to set our sights too low. Just notice lastly there that Jesus enters Jerusalem to fulfill the purpose of the temple. Fulfill the purpose of the temple. It's another strange thing here. All these people were praising Jesus and then it's just cut off. Jesus gets into town and it says he goes into the temple. And you get the impression that except for the disciples, there weren't any other people around at this point. How quickly the praises of men can die down. And he goes into the temple and he just looks around. Doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. It's late. He's going, he looks around at the temple and he goes back to spend the night in Bethany. And if you read on in Mark 11, you know what's coming. You know that Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. You know that everything's going to focus on the temple at this point for the next few chapters in Mark because Jesus wanted them to see that even though the temple had a tremendously important role to play in Old Testament Jewish life, the time had come for the temple to be irrelevant. Why? Because Jesus is the true temple. He is the dwelling place of God and the spirit of Christ indwells us and Paul says we are the temple. Peter says we are God's temple because Christ lives in us. And so we don't need to get focused on a building important as it was for its time. But Jesus came to do away with that because he is the fulfillment of that. So all of this is building up, of course, to what will happen later in the week. For Jesus to come into Jerusalem this way was very significant. He comes into the holy city in a most unusual way as a triumphant king and yet at the same time as a humble servant. You back up to Mark 10, 45, you see the key verse for really the whole book of Mark, Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be the, the royal servant. He came to serve our truest, deepest needs, to know him, to be reconciled to him, to be forgiven our sin, our guilt removed, and a whole new status where we are the adopted children of God. We are justified and we will one day be glorified. Jesus is the basis for all of that happening. 
He comes in order to lay down his life for the redemption of his people from their sins. And one day, one day, Jesus will have another triumphant entry. Only this time, it will be far, far more glorious. He will come with the holy angels. and Every eye will see him. Either to their joyful delight, come Lord Jesus, or to their everlasting dread because they don't know Jesus. It will be a triumphal entry that, like nothing that we've ever seen before, and it will be the climactic one that will usher in the eternal kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth in which only righteousness will dwell. Now, I'll leave you with a question. Where do you stand in terms of this triumphal entry into Jerusalem where you like the people there where you knew a little bit about Jesus and, and could maybe recite a few Bible verses about him too, but that's as far as it gets? Or have you come to a deeper understanding of your own sin, your own estrangement from God, and that that's the reason why things don't go the way they need to go. Jesus came to deal with that estrangement. He came to reconcile us to the Father, to give us new life, to give us uh, uh, the ability to truly live by his word and know the joy and the peace, the security that comes from that. So I urge you, if you've never come to Christ, that you do so, and don't wait until tomorrow. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Today's all we have. Be ready for that triumphal entry. If you know Christ today, be encouraged, dear friend, because you are in that kingdom that can never be destroyed, that can never be conquered all because of the humble servant king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word gives us instruction, not only in things that have happened in the way you've worked in the past in redemptive history, but the way you are working still today in our lives, in this generation of your people Father, may it be that every single one of us here can say that we have bowed our knees to Jesus, that we confess him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior and Lord of sinners like us. Be gracious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.